0: Justice, may it please
1: the court. I'm Amy Swearer. And I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government.
0: Welcome to another episode of SCOTUS 101.
1: Yes, welcome. We have quite the show for you today. We've got grants. We've got emergency orders. We've got oral arguments, but most importantly, we've got our studio back. Yes, that's right, folks. We are back in our studio.
0: That makes us official podcasters, I think.
1: Yeah, I I think so too. Like the the more official podcasters, instead of feeling like we're doing it from our mother's basement or something.
0: Well, first up this week in orders, we had a grant of a case in Carr versus Saul. This is consolidated with another case, and it's an appointments clause challenge to Social Security Administration judges. And These cases ask the question whether a Social Security claimant forfeits an appointments clause challenge to Social Security Administration judges if he fails to make the challenge during the administrative proceedings. So here, the claimants waited until they were on appeal at the federal district court to make the claim. Now, it's important to note these cases will not determine whether Social Security ALJs are senior officers who must be appointed and subject to the advice and consent of the Senate like we saw with the SEC ALJs in the Lucia case. Uh, But these cases do signal that such a case is coming down the pipeline.
1: Late last Friday, we also saw an emergency order from Justice Alito with respect to the ongoing litigation over Pennsylvania's counting of mail-in ballots received up to three days after the election. Alito ordered the segregation of these ballots and that if they are counted, they should be counted separately. But he did not grant Pennsylvania Republicans' request to stop counting them altogether. The Pennsylvania Secretary of State had already issued guidance that canvassing boards should segregate these ballots arriving after Election Day, but the Pennsylvania Republicans asserted that it wasn't at all clear the boards were following that guidance. If you recall, there is still a cert petition pending before the court, again, dealing with the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's rewriting of a state law to extend the date for accepting mail-in ballots. In the long run, If the election results keep going the way that they're going, I'm not sure how big of an overall impact this lawsuit or this cert petition could ultimately have. And once again, the most relieved man in America is going to be (laughs) Chief Justice John Roberts if this doesn't ultimately come down to a narrow margin in Pennsylvania.
0: Last up, the court declined to hear a case brought by two congressional Democrats that would have challenged a 2010 case out of the D.C. Circuit called SpeechNow.org which permits political action committees to accept unlimited donations as long as they aren't coordinating with parties or candidates. That brings us to oral arguments. The first up this week we had Brownback versus King. This case asked the question whether a dismissal of a Federal Tort Claims Act case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction triggers that acts bar against related actions so as to foreclose a Bivens action based on those same facts. So there's a lot to unpack here, so we'll break it down. In this case, Mr. King was stopped by two FBI agents in a case of mistaken identity. He struggled against them, the altercation got violent, the agents pummeled him. So he sued them, making two claims in one lawsuit. Federal Tort Claims Act, which allows you to sue the United States if federal officers commit state law torts, and a Bivens claim, which allows you to sue federal officers for violating your civil rights. Now, the district court determined that King had failed to allege sufficient facts to show that the agents committed any state law torts. So it dismissed his Federal Tort Claims Act case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, and it granted qualified immunity on the Bivens claim. On appeal, King decided to pursue only the Bivens claim, but the Sixth Circuit ordered briefing on the question whether the so-called judgment bar in the Federal Tort Claims Act barred that claim. Now, the judgment bar is not where judges hang out after work. But um Thank you, Amy. But it's rather a troublesome little line in the Federal Tort Claims Act that says a judgment in such an action is a bar to any other action based on the same facts. So, we've got two issues. Is a dismissal for lack of subject matter jurisdiction a judgment? And is a Bivens claim within one lawsuit a separate action? Now, the Sixth Circuit only decided the first question and it said a dismissal for lack of subject matter jurisdiction is not a judgment. At oral argument, the justices were not really concerned with the first question, although Justice Breyer and Justice Sotomayor were interested in some of the practical implications of ruling one way or another. Instead, they were much more interested in the second, is a Bivens claim in the same lawsuit a separate action? Based on their questions, it seemed that a majority of judges thought a Bivens claim was not a separate action, but there's a good chance the court doesn't actually answer that question. Four justices, Thomas, Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, were all skeptical about whether the court should decide that question since it was not how the Sixth Circuit decided that case.
1: In other news, if podcasting doesn't work out for John Carler and I, we're going to open a drinking establishment called the Judgment Bar. <laughs> The other major oral argument this week, and you know it's a big deal because the Senate spent half of Justice Barrett's confirmation hearings obsessing over how big of a deal it is, is California v. Texas, the latest iteration of the Affordable Care Act goes to court. This time, it's the individual mandate part two. So let's recap a bit because anytime the Affordable Care Act goes to court, it is long and confusing. The individual mandate is the ACA provision that directs virtually all Americans to buy health insurance or face a financial penalty. In 2012, in NFIB v. Sebelius, the court upheld that provision by framing the penalty as a tax and therefore an appropriate exercise of congressional taxing authority. But then in 2017, Congress amended the individual mandate so that the penalty is now zero dollars. I like that tax. (laughs) Several states and individual plaintiffs sued saying, now, wait a minute, this is no longer a tax because it is zero dollars and therefore it's unconstitutional. So now we've got three major questions in this case for the justices to decide. So first, do the individual and state plaintiffs have Article 3 standing to sue in the first place? Second, is the individual mandate now an unconstitutional command to buy health insurance since the tax is zero dollars and not really a tax? And third, if the individual mandate is indeed unconstitutional, can it be severed from the rest of the Affordable Care Act or does the entire act fall with it? So you bet there were a good number of questions about all three of these issues. This was a very long oral argument with four different advocates in total, so I'm just going to highlight some of the strains of questioning that were, I think, the most instructive. Most intriguing to me was Justice Roberts with the question of severability going right after the attorneys for California and the House of Representatives, basically saying to them, look, eight years ago, you all sat here and convinced me that the individual mandate was the key to the whole act. And now you're saying, no, 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 just kidding. It's not so important that it can't be severed. What gives. So it'll be interesting to see sort of how Justice Roberts ends up with that question. The other big theme was the intent of Congress versus the text of the statute. This was a theme that came up repeatedly in the questioning and arguments generally. You had California and the House on one side arguing that Congress absolutely could not have intended to change this one little thing and topple a thousand other pages of the ACA. And you have the DOJ in Texas on the other side arguing, one, yes, they could have done that, and two, it doesn't matter because this change had a legal consequence regardless of what Congress intended. Um, So there are lots of questions parsing through that, this intent versus text. Uh, And third, you had several justices who were quite hung up on the question of severability. So Roberts, even though he went after California and the House of Representatives for trying to pull one over on him with, you know, is it important, is it not important, he still appeared wary that maybe Congress was just trying to get the court to strike down a law so that Congress itself didn't have to take the heat for doing so. Um, you had Kavanaugh a couple times uh, telling the advocates, look, I agree that it, it seems to me to be a very straightforward case for severability under our precedents. What do we do with these precedents? Uh, you had Thomas twice asking whether they should even be considering severability at this stage, which is really a standing stage, or or whether instead it should be at a later merit stage. Look, in the end, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I have no idea what this opinion is going to look like. I suspect that you have at least five justices who get past the issue of standing, and I suspect that you have at least five justices who would find the individual mandate unconstitutional under this new zeroing out provision. Uh, but there are very few combinations of holdings that would utterly shock me, given what we saw in oral arguments. And again, I'm I'm really interested to see what the chief does with severability after saving it under the taxing clause eight years ago.
0: Well, we're still in the middle of election fever. And on the subject of executive power, this week I interviewed Professor John Yu, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at UC Berkeley. Professor Yu immigrated to the United States from South Korea. He went to Harvard and then Yale and clerked for Judge Silberman on the DC Circuit and Justice Thomas. Among other positions, he served in the office of legal counsel during George W. Bush's administration. He is an expert on judicial review, executive power, the separation of powers generally, national security law, and international law. Really, he is a Renaissance man of the law. Today, Professor Yu, joined me to talk about his latest book, Defender-in-Chief, Donald Trump's Fight for Presidential Power. <laughs> Professor, thanks for joining us.
2: Uh, Giancarlo, thanks for inviting me. I'm really uh, glad to be back with Heritage to talk about this new book of mine.
0: So about this book, uh, give us the overview, the uh, the elevator pitch.
2: Oh, I hate these elevator pitches. I always walk the stairs. Elevators, come <laughs> on. We can't take elevators in COVID anymore. That means like if you and I walk, I get like five minutes to talk to you, not 30 seconds. <laughs> all right. Um, all right. Where, where have reason. you been during COVID? Actually, I'll give you the elevator the stair <laughs> <no>. pitch. <laughs> yeah. no, seriously though, the, the book is actually uh, in part describes my journey from someone who started out skeptical if not opposed to President Trump in 2016, uh, to someone who's more supportive of him now. And the reason why is if you were to follow the media, if you were to listen to the commentary of great constitutional law scholars, uh, read some of the court decisions, you would think that Donald Trump was destroying the Constitution, right? That's why uh, the House of Representatives said it was impeaching Donald Trump just a few months ago or it's hard to remember but the impeachment trial just ended you know 5 6 months ago and but when you look at closely at the positions i argue that Donald Trump is not a threat to the constitution he's actually been its unlikely defender these last 4 years
0: so what are the central themes of the book is that Trump is defending the framers' conception of the presidency, even though he might not be intending to do so. In fact, may may not be intending at all to do so. Can you? What did you mean by that?
2: Oh yes, yeah, so, a uh, good point. You've already just on the by the time we got to the second flight of stairs, you've already peeled everything back to the basic point. Very, <laughs> uh, very good. Uh, so the, yes. Yeah, so the point is with the fight for presidential power. Trump, of course, may not be thinking about the Constitution all, all that much. He may remember famously in the presidential nomination debates four years ago, he thought the Constitution had 12, 13 articles in it, <laughs> and uh, he wasn't he didn't seem too clear on the separation of powers and how it worked. Well, what the Constitution does, and this is described by James Madison in the Federalist Papers, is that it channels the self-interest of the actors in our constitutional system into a greater constitutional good, much like in the way that the free markets, you know, we you buy and sell goods and services to make ourselves better off. But in the meantime, we produce the greater social good of the efficient allocation of resources in our society. And the same thing with the constitution, Madison said ambition must be made to counteract ambition. The constitution is designed for ambitious men and women to enter public life, to push the boundaries of their offices, but also because they're all doing it at the same time, they come into conflict and the greater constitutional good uh, that's achieved according to Madison is the preservation of liberty. So I argue that in many of these, of course, Donald Trump is pursuing his own political interests. He's fighting for his self-preservation when he fights the Mueller investigation or the impeachment inquiry but in doing so, he achieves a greater constitutional good that doesn't even require him to be thinking consciously about it.
0: Can you give us an illustration of uh, – this is a very broad question, but the framers mm-hmm. – the, the, the broad parameters of the framers' conception of the executive power, perhaps in a mm-hmm. real-world example?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, th- th- and this is part of the trick of the book. Uh, I think we might get to it. Uh, later, is that yes? This is a book about Trump, but it's really a book about the presidency. And I was hoping to trick people who are interested in Trump, which is just about everybody right now, for good or ill, uh, support him or hate him, but in the hopes that they would pick up this book and learn a lot more about the presidency. This is a great question. What is the nature of the presidency to the founders? And how do we see it appear in our politics and in the Supreme Court? Uh, to me, uh, and I try to trace it back all the way, I think, to the person who really first thought deeply about executive power, who's Machiavelli, and then it goes through Hobbes and Locke, Montesquieu, and that's how it sort of gets transmitted to the founding generation. Is that legislatures, in contrast, are large, they're slow, they write, they deliberate, and they write rules, general rules for society. Then you need a different branch of government, one that's not meeting sporadically. One that's not necessarily always deliberating, but one that's designed for action. One, a branch that can act quickly and decisively with speed and stealth sometimes. That's the phrase from Hamilton in federalist number 70, but he's almost copying directly from Machiavelli and from Hobbes and Locke when he uses those words. And so the presidency is the part of our government that can act immediately. And then where the founders, where they thought that would be the most important, was protecting the nation's security, uh, such as managing war, and then executing the laws, enforcing uh, the laws, and then managing the government.
0: What did somebody who sees Trump and says, well, yes, he acts quickly, but he acts unconstitutionally, what do you say to that argument?
2: And then this is sort of uh, when you get down to the nitty gritty of the book and the examples and the issues that have come up repeatedly over the last four years comes up, which is, uh, is he really acting unconstitutionally all all these times that people have attacked him? For example, uh, when he fired Jim Comey as head of the FBI, was he acting unconstitutionally? You would have thought. You know, this was the end of the American Republic, if you go back <laughs> to these those days. And this was very early on, if you remember, in 2017. But actually, as my book explains, uh, the Constitution gives only to the president the duty and the power to see that the laws are faithfully executed, as the Constitution says in Article 2. Everybody who works in law enforcement in the executive branch is the assistant or the subordinate to the president and carrying out that duty. And as the Supreme Court itself has said in Myers versus United States, even said in Morrison versus Olson, more recent case about the independent council, but also going back to the decisions in the very first uh, months of the Republic under this constitution, in order to achieve its goals effectively, the president must be able to remove anyone subordinate to him who's involved in law enforcement. Otherwise, they might pursue their own agendas and execute the laws they think they ought to faithfully, not that of the president. Uh, and so that's just, that's just one of many examples. Now, it happened to be that, you know, as you mentioned before, you know, what about Trump and his self-interest? Trump seems to enjoy the power to fire <laughs> more than most past presidents I can remember. He sort of trained for it on reality TV with his favorite tagline, you're fired. But you're fired actually turns out to be the most important means of presidential control over the executive branch and allows him to fulfill his constitutional duties.
0: So this being a podcast about the Supreme Court, I want to focus a little bit on the Supreme Court's relationship with this executive power and particularly the court's approach to executive power, because we've had a lot of these cases in the last uh, not just four years, but the the last 12 years. So can you talk a little bit about, have we seen a change in the court's treatment of executive power between Obama and Trump?
2: That's a good question. So first, I think that Trump has not been making wild constitutional claims in court. Actually, he when you actually read the briefs, look at the arguments, he's actually... Um, defending his uh, right to presidential power on quite conventional uh, uh, precedents, historical practices, and readings of the constitutional text. Um, it's actually, I'd say, his accusers who have really sought to stretch, bend, or even outright call for constitutional revolution. And uh, you know, I make, in the book, I make the case this is true if you look at things like the Electoral College or the size of the Supreme Court, uh, independent councils, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at this translated to Supreme Court cases, um, the first, I think, major test uh, about executive power at the court was the travel ban cases, uh, Trump uh, Hawaii versus Trump. And there, uh, I think the first version of the travel ban was poorly done and probably unconstitutional. But then uh, the administration rewrote it into versions 2.0 and then a 3.0. And the 3.0 seemed clearly constitutional to me. And the Trump administration didn't make a wild constitutional claim that it could just as a matter of executive power control who came into the country or not. Uh, But instead, they relied closely on statutes where Congress, which everyone admits has the immigration power, had the right Uh, to decide who comes in and out of the country, but then delegated it to the president in certain situations like emergencies or national security grounds. The people who attacked uh, Trump were the ones who said, ah, well, even if he has that power, the court has the right to peer into the presidential mind and look for grounds for animus, you you know, discriminatory intent. And so I actually think if first Trump had some success, But then over the last few years, he's been losing more and more at the Supreme Court. So for example, that Trump versus Hawaii uh, idea of intent of the president, what the court says they really don't want to do and Trump wins that case in 20, uh, eventually it's 2018, it takes about a year for it to get up to this room. But eventually uh, by the end of his term, he starts to lose on these grounds. So you might remember last term, Uh, Trump lost the case about whether to include a question on the census about citizenship. And there, the court does try to look at intent. Just this year, uh, a case I think was terribly wrong, uh, which was the case upholding President Obama's DACA order. Uh, The Supreme Court, again, I think uh, suggested that President Trump had acted pretextually in ending the DACA program. And we could talk a little, that decision I think actually shows um, how the court has become more and more intrusive uh, and rejected more and more claims of presidential power uh, by the Trump administration. And I think the Trump administration by the fourth year has been more often on the losing end of these major cases with the court than it's been on the winning end, which is where it was when it started.
0: Yeah, I'd like to focus on the DACA case in particular and, and sort of orient your articulation of the executive power with the example of the DACA case and what you call the power of reversal. Can you discuss that power and how the DACA case illustrates the tension that it's in right now?
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting because I think the court really upset uh, what I think of as a core power of the executive, which is just to undo what the last president did. Uh, So I think it's it's really actually an interesting question. And the court um, has usually sided with the president on these matters, or at least allowed a practice to develop. Where, which enhanced presidential power. And the simple question is this: The Constitution uh, talks a lot about how you uh, conduct an affirmative act, how you pass a law, Supreme Court makes a decision, the executive, you know, uses commander chief power or appoints somebody or makes a treaty in cooperation with the Senate. But it doesn't really discuss how you undo things, how you reverse a decision. So we just assume, in many areas of the Constitution, that the, you just do the same thing over again. So when you pass a law and you wanna repeal it, you have to pass a new law. When the Supreme Court wants to reverse a precedent, it has to do it in a new case, you know, with a similar five to four vote. Uh, but the executive branch is different. The executive branch hasn't been sub, usually it's easier to undo something than it, uh, that a past president has done. So for example, uh, the, our favorite Trump power, the power to fire. If you think about that, the power of appointment requires the president and the Senate uh, with its advice and consent. But to fire, you just need the president. Uh, treaties, uh, you need two-thirds of the Senate to make a treaty, but the president can undo a treaty by himself. So maybe at a minimum, presidents have to can undo past presidential decisions by, right. you can repeal an old executive order with a new executive order. Uh, you can put a stop to some presidential policy taken under its inherent authority by undoing it but if anything, it should be in those cases easier. Now what happened DACA I thought was incredible. So here you had a president, President Obama, and he makes the claim that he has the right using his prosecutorial discretion, right? His right to choose which cases are important or not to prosecute. He has the right to uh, not enforce the immigration laws against a class of about 2 million people who are brought here as kids. I, I support the policy, uh, but I think Congress is the one who should do it. They're the ones that have the power of immigration and decide which categories they're not. But President Obama is frustrated. Congress doesn't pass the DACA law, so he just implements it as prosecutors' discretion in 2012. And then two years later, expands it to another 6 million, it's estimated, DAPA, that's 6 million per DAPA program. So you would have thought when President Trump came in, under these principles of reversal I was describing, he could say, well, I'm going to use my prosecutorial discretion differently. I'm going to start enforcing cases in that area. In fact, I think President Obama was acting unconstitutionally when he said, I can just exempt 8 million people from the federal immigration laws. I would have thought that was normal, standard presidential power to reverse your successor. It's one of the great checks on the presidency is what your successor might do. But remarkably, the Supreme Court this term said, no, actually, President Trump has to use the Administrative Procedure Act to undo something that Obama didn't even do with the Administrative Procedure Act. And, uh, and here's the, the, I think, the thing that was not really brought out in the case. And therefore, the Supreme Court, in this case, can force President Trump to continue using his executive power in a way that he thinks is unconstitutional. I think it's a startling declaration of the Supreme Court's supremacy uh, in constitutional interpretation over a, what's supposed to be a coordinate and equal branch. Sorry for the long answer, but I really an exercise a... <laughs> about this case.
0: <laughs> so you wrote an op-ed recently where you said this has really big implications for potentially paving the way for abuses of executive power in the future. Can you unpack that argument?
2: Yes. Yeah, so I'd love to explain the argument. What happened to the argument is you equally even more interesting. So I wrote a piece about a day later saying, this just can't be right. If it's true, then president Trump could say, well, I don't feel like enforcing this law. I don't feel like enforcing that law because I just happen to disagree with it. And I'm going to use my prosecutorial discretion to do so. Uh, and according to the court, that could go on as long as Trump's president. And then it would take a successor years to undo it. Cause then say president Biden wins. And you know, there's a president Biden in a few months, he has to use the administrative procedure act to undo those executive orders, which takes, you know, can take, well, it could take months, if not years. It took Trump four years. He's still enforcing DACA for and for his entire term. So I said, well, what if we did a search for place of that DACA opinion? And instead of immigration, we substituted the word taxes. Could President Trump make the exact same claim as President Obama? Could he say, I think it's a waste of prosecutorial discretion to send federal agents out there to collect taxes from poor people or middle class people or people, especially during a pandemic when people need their money, Uh, it's better off for the country as a whole that that money sit in the hands of families that need it. And I'm gonna send our IRS agents somewhere more important and do something else. This is a tempting idea. <laughs> it's so tempting. President Trump apparently read the article and <laughs> uh, and, and uh, apparently circulated in the White House staff. And as you know, we just a few days ago he announced he wasn't going to collect Social Security taxes for the rest of the year. Uh, and I have to confess, you know, President Trump asked me to come by the Oval Office and talk about this and other subjects. Uh, I, uh, you know, I was just struck by it because what happened because people said this is crazy. I mean, this is crazy, and I said it's not. It's not me that's crazy. It's the Supreme Court that's crazy. I thought DACA was unconstitutional. I thought the Supreme Court was flatly wrong, keeping that unconstitutional but popular policy in place. But. You can't have one kind of supreme court opinion that only applies to trump and another supreme court opinion that applies to obama if mm-hmm. the court's going to say obama can do this then why can't president trump do it and that's the only way to, that the supreme court will learn its lesson it seems to me is if it realizes and sees the consequences of trying to pick and choose between presidents to like and dislike
0: so our this recent trend with the supreme court is this really you know, a, a far departure from where the Supreme Court was 20, 30, 40 years ago? Is it a Trump moment or is there a sort of a unifying theme? That's a good
2: question, Giancarlo. I mean, and that's what I was trying to do in the book is let, let's take a step back from the day-to-day political or legal or judicial warfare we're seeing because of the mm-hmm. Trump presidency and what's going on at a broader level. So I think there's a uh, two things. Uh, one with the application to the courts, the one is application to the courts is that you have had a Supreme court that is steadily claiming case after case. Uh, and I think really reaches a height in the DACA case, uh, but you see it in other places too, like Hawaii versus Trump, for example, case after case, it's putting um, the bricks in the wall of this startling claim to judicial supremacy that it has the final say over the meaning of the constitution. This was just what has struck the founders dumb. <laughs> they, you know, The people who wrote and ratified the constitution barely thought about judicial review. They talked a lot about the obligation of the executive and legislative branches to interpret and enforce laws. They, and the constitution being the chief law of all. And this is why Marbury versus Madison is still controversial to this day mm-hmm. uh, because Chief Justice John Marshall can't ta- point to a specific text that clearly gives the Supreme Court this power of just equal right to review the Constitution, not to mention a superior right. But you could go back you know, you could look at – and this is something that affects uh, partisans of both sides. So you could say, oh, in DACA, this is terrible. President Trump loses because of da-da-da-da-da and the court's uh, forcing – him to obey their interpretation of its executive power, but you could say, you know, civil rights supporters are not happy because in Shelby County, the court in a way rejects Congress's effort to interpret uh, the 14th and 15th amendments and enforce them in, this, in the South. But this is goes on from before Roberts, you could say uh, in cases like city of Bernie under the Rehnquist court, the Rehnquist court basically said, we're gonna reject Congress's view about how to protect religious freedom and we're going to force them to obey smith our view of how to protect religious freedom by in that case you know in those cases striking down the religious freedom restoration act so this has been something that's a broader trend um, this is not the way it was for most of our history where you may you know jean-carlo in the early years of the republic uh, congress and the president made most of the major constitutional decisions and mm-hmm. how they set up the government how they fought over slavery the civil war in fact uh, the peers the, of great conflict in our history are often accompanied by rejections of the idea that the Supreme Court should set the rules of the Constitution for everybody. You know, you could say that uh, the 13th Amendment is a direct rejection of the court's claim to supremacy in Dred Scott. You can look at the great confrontation of the New Deal between the Supreme Court and the president, where the Supreme Court you know, pulls back and no longer claims it has the right to interpret economic rights because it was claiming it had this final say before and i see you see that coming up again now so sometimes when i think about what's going even in a larger context than this book is that maybe the court is heading for yet another confrontation with the other branches and maybe setting itself up for, setting itself up for another uh, fall
0: so if let's say the supreme court decided this time you know we're going to get this balance right What uh, what does that look like?
2: Ah, uh, the balance between judicial supremacy or ju- judicial review and the rights of the other branches?
0: Sure. Not not maybe not in in the hypothetical sense. Let's go back in time to Marbury Madison, but No, no, yes, <laughs> let's not
2: do that. Uh, you, 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 the, the listenership of the podcast will fall by 98% <laughs> if we were to do that. <laughs> but let's say the the court,
0: you know, tomorrow or next term wanted to yeah. take a step in the right direction. What's a step look like?
2: Uh, That's a good point. Well, a step would be more respect for the uh, interpretation of the constitution by the other branches. So for example, uh, they should retract, I think, I think immediately from this idea that they have the right to judge whether presidential decisions are pretextual or not, or that congressional decisions are pretextual or not and say, we're not going to accept, you know, the facial reasons on the, face of a law or face of an executive order, but we're going to find out what, what the president was really thinking. What was Congress really thinking? I mean, that's very disrespectful, if you think about it, to the independent and equal status of the other branches. Suppose, and I, I, I Suppose the other branches treated the courts this way, and maybe they will someday. They say, yeah, the Supreme Court just ordered us to do this. But does it really believe what it said in its opinion? Let's look behind the judicial opinion and see what's really going on in the court. What are the different justices really thinking? You know, think if you imagine doing that, that brings a lot of uh, disrespect to the court and also potential. Right. You know, refusal to obey its decisions. so I think that's what the first steps look like Retract from at least initially return to the old principle that you respect the other branches you take what they say at face value you disregard effort you know this claim that you can psycholo- you know conduct psychological examination of the heads of the coordinate uh, branches. I would also say um, a stronger political question doctrine is in order you know another area that I've written a lot about where the court has steadily tried to expand its Uh, role, I think at odds with our history and practice, is in foreign affairs. Uh, And you see a lot of judicial involvement in the lower courts and at the Supreme Court. They less and less um, respect the idea of the political question doctrine uh, when it comes to war and foreign policy. And that is another example where the courts, they have no role, it seems to me. Uh, The Constitution doesn't give the courts the right to review everything the federal government does in every area. But this court, I don't think, believes that.
0: Professor Yu, I don't want to take too much of your time, but this was uh, it was great to have you on. Now, as you know, and because you've been here before, you've, you've answered this question. But just in case your answer has changed, we'd love to ask, if you could meet, talk to again, any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about?
2: Actually, I don't think you've asked me this before. Usually, I get asked trivia questions, oh. of which I get them all right, and I outdo <laughs> the hosts. Because uh, I am a, you know, I am a Supreme Court trivia junkie. Although my uh, podcast co-host Richard Epstein out- outdoes me even in those, because he he tends to find heroes in the more obscure justices who have share his unusual tastes for libertarian ideas. <laughs> so I, um, that's a good, actually, I it's a good question. I mean, I'm sure everybody says uh, John Marshall, and I I probably would find him uh, the most interesting. But no, you know, it's it's interesting. I don't I mean, I think Marshall is interesting because of Marbury and McCullough the Standard things, but I also would love to talk to Marshall about his non-judicial career, about serving as an artillery officer in the Revolutionary War and as a writer, you know, writing his multi-volume biography of Washington and being a convention delegate at the Virginia Ratifying Convention. But you know who I would want to meet. So I, I think the better question, here's the better question you should ask people, Giancarlo, <laughs> is which person would you like to talk to about the Constitution who is not on the Supreme Court?
0: Oh, that is That's an interesting a better, question. Much
2: better question. And of course, my answer would be Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> I, mean, I think <laughs> he's an unbelievable figure. In fact, I'm thinking about writing a book. Um, my next book might be a book about Hamilton's constitutional thought. There actually isn't a book out there. That is Hamilton's-
0: genuinely surprising.
2: Isn't that surprising? Go, go test it. It's another little trivia question for you. Go see. There's a lot of books about... Hamilton's thought, you know, in Hamilton's life, which is an extraordinary life, but there's not a book about his constitutional thought. So I wanted, I was thinking writing that next and maybe making the claim that uh, the world we live in now is really Hamilton's world.
0: Well, I want an early copy of this.
2: (laughs) Only if I get to come (laughs) back on the podcast and then I get to ask all the questions. (laughs) Okay, it's a deal.
0: (laughs) Well, thanks so much, Professor, for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you, Carlo. It's been a lot of fun and I uh, look forward to coming back again. Thank you.
1: Well, folks, that brings us to the final portion of our show and personally my favorite portion, the portion where I try to stump Carlo with trivia.
0: I have to do really well this week because you killed it last week. <laughs> I've got my reputation to defend. It's turning
1: into a little bit of a competition here, isn't it? Uh, a little bit. So today's theme is... Since we just had Veterans Day this week, Veterans Day, veterans and the courts. Are you ready? I am ready. All right. Question number one. Veterans Day was originally Armistice Day for the end of the Great War. Name three of the seven future justices who served in that original war to end all wars. Bonus point if you can name the most decorated justice of the Great War.
0: So, I know one of these off the top of my head because his is a story that once you learn it, you can't unlearn it, even if you want to. And I'm going to save that one for last. Uh, of so, three people who served in World War I. I know Hugo Black did. That is correct. So, that's one. I think that anyone in that same age range is probably fair game. So let me say Frank Murphy
1: that is also correct
0: all right well uh, let me tell you the third one that I know for sure that's Earl Warren and the reason that I know Earl Warren's story stories because I learned it once and can't forget it so World War one breaks out and he decides to uh, join officer training school but he gets rejected do you know why he gets rejected Amy
1: I do not but I expect you to tell me now
0: As, it's great he has hemorrhoids
1: Oh, but here's the thing. I don't
0: understand. Right. There are hemorrhoids. And then there are, I'm sorry, but you can't join the army during a world war hemorrhoids. Yeah, we
1: can't send you to the trench hemorrhoids. Right. What? Uh, poor, uh, poor, God bless
0: him. I have to say. <laughs> so that's Earl Warren. He did end up uh, joining. Uh, but by the time he got his hemorrhoids fixed and uh, finished training, he never actually made it to Europe, I think.
1: We're still going to count it, though, because he did join. <laughs> uh, do you have any other guesses or any guess as to—because you have not yet named the most decorated the justice. The most
0: decorated justice. Um, I wouldn't know where to start. I'm pretty positive it's not Earl Warren.
1: No. No, it is, <laughs> it, is, it is not. He did not get an award for the hemorrhoids. Uh, so the other justices were Stanley Reed, Fred Vinton, Sherman Minton, and then the most decorated was Harold Burton— who was an army captain who saw heavy combat in France and Belgium as an infantry officer. He was awarded an American Purple Heart and a Belgian Croix de Guerre, which is uh, given for military virtue and bravery during battle. It's roughly the equivalent of an American Bronze Star. All right. So he did very well on that one. Question number two. Two current justices are military veterans, though neither served during wartime. Which... Two justices, am I referring to?
0: Uh, So, uh, Justice Alito, for sure, he is or was a captain in the Army, uh, and Justice Breyer, I think.
1: That is also correct. (laughs) Justice Breyer spent eight years in the Army Reserve, six months on active duty. He reached the rank of corporal and was honorably discharged in 1965. And as you alluded to, Justice Alito uh, became a, a captain in the Army Reserve. He joined the ROTC while at Princeton and was commissioned as a second lieutenant in the Army Signal Corps. Uh, he was honorably discharged in 1980. You think they have any, uh, any fights on the bench over who's actually the most senior? <laughs> I, that never occurred to me. That's, that's an interesting way of looking at it. I wonder if they do raz each other about it. All right. Question number three. In the 2012 case, United States v. Alvarez, the Supreme Court struck down a portion of a federal statute criminalizing false statements about having a military medal. What was the colloquial name of that statute, and on what grounds did the court invalidate it?
0: Uh, So that is the Stolen Valor Act. That is correct. And actually, as to the second question, so it was a First Amendment challenge, but I remember the court was, was pretty badly split about how the First Amendment interacted with that act, and I couldn't tell you how that broke down. But-
1: Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll give him we'll give him half credit. Uh, so it was it was on First Amendment grounds. You had a three justice plurality uh, who found that there is no general exception for false statements that aren't you know, otherwise made for material gain. And you had two concurring justices who would have struck it down under intermediate scrutiny uh, for working a disproportionate constitutional harm. So we we'll, we'll we'll rescind that buzzer and <laughs> give it back to him. All right. I've Got one final question. All right. Going back to that same United States v. Alvarez, what award did Alvarez, the defendant in that case, allege he had received and for service in which branch of the armed forces?
0: Oh, I, so I think that there were a couple or several medals involved. One of them was definitely the Medal of Honor. That's correct. As to which branch... There's been a lot of talk of the Army today. I wonder if that's the right way to go or not.
1: Is that your final answer?
0: Yes, that's my final answer.
1: That is incorrect. Uh, it was the Marine Corps. The Marine Corps. Ah. Uh, uh, so this individual made statements during his first public meeting as a member of his local water district board uh, that he was a Medal of Honor winner who would served 25 years in the Marine Corps, Turns out uh, he was a serial liar in this regard. He had a habit of telling people that he played hockey for the Detroit Red Wings uh, sometime, I guess, before or after winning his Medal of Honor and was also previously married to a star Mexican actress. I don't want to denigrate
0: the Detroit Red Wings, but I have never heard of them. And can't say that I'd be terribly impressed if you told me you worked for them.
1: I guess that's why he went on to the Medal of Honor. (laughs) Well, folks, that is our show. Thank you so much for listening to SCOTUS 101. Be sure to subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever other streaming device you use to find your podcasts. And then tell me about that streaming device because I would like to know. And please, 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 if you love us, leave us that five-star rating.
0: You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
2: You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Amy Swear and Giancarlo Canaparo. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.